If you're a rotary fanatic, chances are you've either seen or heard of Rob Darn's insane FDRX7. It's a full tube frame build with a quad rotor engine and to top things off, it's also four wheel drive. Uh, we did shoot this car back in 2019, but a lot's happened since then. We're here with Rob to get a little bit of a catch up on what's been going on with development of this car. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures and presented it in podcast format for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. So Rob, back in 2019 when we saw the car, I think it had started and run but I don't know if it had seen a dyno, so there's a lot to catch up on. Maybe yeah, yeah. start with that. What what happened after SEMA when we saw you last time? Yeah, so what you saw was the almost first couple hours of the life of the car as a running vehicle. You know, it was a lot of potential, a lot of a lot of goal, a lot of ideal, but not a lot of actual. And so this is really the proven version of everything I was claiming or hoping to do. And quite frankly, there's been very few compromises. So it, it is an absolute animal in many ways. And honestly, not because you're here, but a uh, shameless not self-plug, but you plug, is that because of HP Academy, I, I took over all the tuning. I took over the engine building. I took over all the wiring. You know, And there's, there's no excuses on this vehicle because I, I ended up doing it myself. And so it's been a beautiful journey because... All the testing and potential that would not be economical for you to pay a tuner to do on a weird vehicle like this, I was able to do. And I found some really amazing functionality and performance out of this car that, uh, like I said, just di deep diving. You know, you get really lost in some specific things, but I'll try and keep it high level first and then we can dive into whatever we want to dive into. I should have actually started by saying thank you for propping the uh, HP Academy with your t-shirt. It, it's a little weird, but uh, I'm, I'm going to take it. And, and I mean, coming back to what you're saying there, I think a lot of enthusiasts watching this would think that doing their own wiring, doing their own tuning is, is beyond them. And of course, there's a learning curve involved, but I mean, obviously a testament to the fact that you absolutely can if you put your mind to it. Now, as you mentioned there, that was a bit of a test bench. You'd only just got it running. The whole thing is built from the ground up. And I'm, I'm interested to know, once you actually got a chance to sort of shake it down, start driving the car, testing it, get it on a dyno, uh, how far from the ballpark was it? Were there any major problems that you found that you weren't aware of until you actually got into testing? Yeah, so uh, quite a few things that were like made sense in theory did not work in practicality. So one example is when you looked at the car back then, I had a very complex path intercooler. And it was cool. It was I originally designed it the way it is now, but the company that was helping me said, hey, we can make this a dual pass intercooler because dual pass radiators have benefits, so maybe this will be more beneficial. And it was extremely limiting in terms of airflow at about 1,000 horsepower. So we had a really difficult time making more than 1,000 horsepower, and it wasn't adding up because I didn't have a pre-intercooler sensor, so I didn't know the pressure difference or anything like that. But I ended up doing the math from you know, intercooling or turbocharging uh, websites on how, you know, like, hey, if this much heat's coming in and coming out, and I was like, I've got a massive pressure drop on my intercooler. So that's one of many examples where uh, another one is my injectors. The, the intake manifold I bought with this engine, all the injectors were almost a foot away from the engine itself. And so no matter what sort of tuning you 
tried to do, you could never get the motor under 3000 RPM to respond without going super lean and then dumping the fuel down into the motor. There's, there's one of those subtle things that I think until you've actually experienced it, you wouldn't necessarily work out by yourself. But that is why we also see with most production engines uh, that are port injected, that the port injectors are very, very close to the intake valve. Obviously, this yeah. is a rotary, there's no valves, but I'm sure you can get the point. So for that quick introduction of the fuel for transient enrichment. Let's talk a little bit more about the rotary engine. Uh, is this still the original four rotor that you had in the car back in 2019? Uh, have you found any problems? Has there been any iterations or development there? So during the interview, all I could think of is that when I was told by the guys that had helped originally assemble the motor, this thing wasn't supposed to last. Like I was told that like, good luck. <laughs> all I cared about was making it into SEMA, knowing I had a running car and then if it blew up after that, I was good. I did it. You know, like I, I hit the milestone. And so I was really on the, the, the cusp of at least public knowledge of billet rotary engines. I knew that they had ran a new pack and those other guys had things going, but, but drag cars are a very specific, very quick use of a, an engine. And so uh, I was really on my own on that point. This is still the same engine, but I've actually gotten comfortable enough with machine work to machine injector holes into it. I've done a lot of other work to it, feeding the oil slightly different, a little bit you know, more, uh, I'd say, streamlined process because there were so many hoses and things sticking out of this motor. So, but yeah. Speaking of machining, just coming back to that, because one of the elements that you told me off camera that, that you changed was machining the, the housings to take your injectors or a stage of injectors in the factory location. So talk us through that. Yeah. So like I said, all 16 injectors were about a foot away. And, and, and there were quite a few tuners that reached out and said, oh, you know, I can help you. I think your tuning is the problem. And you know, that was a, the right approach at first, because realistically, you would think that, okay, it's an adjustable thing that's causing you problems. But I did the math and I was trying to figure out, okay, how much air would move between each rotor cycle. And I was like, there's just no way that that fuel could get to the motor on a transient throttle response. And so I went under the very terrifying process of trying to get the right tolerances to get the injector down into the runner. Honestly, like OEM, like I thought, okay, I know OEM works really well and these injectors are not in that spot. My billet rotor, or my billet irons were just smooth there there was nothing there and so i was like okay i have one shot to machine this just right you know it's, it's not even a test it's a production piece let me try and machine it smooth enough to be able to seal with an o-ring i have no room for mistake because as soon as that o-ring gets too large i mean it's just the tolerances are very intense and so it's not, not a part that you want to make a mistake on right not, not a part you want to make a mistake on at all you have no like I, the motor would have been down for another year or so Let's talk a little bit more about the billet components and the rotary engines. I mean, as you sort of mentioned, they're definitely not new, but there is still, it's a market that is, is developing. And from what I've followed, there's been quite a few players in the market, uh, quite a few different approaches. So uh, for a start, for, for those who aren't rotary fanatics, what, why are these billet parts necessary in the first place? Yeah, so you know, Mazda really started something amazing and then understood that that wasn't the future. And so they kind of let that sunset a little bit. Now they've gone back into developing or not developing producing replacement parts but that there was a massive amount of time where they weren't and so people got nervous and they were like i still want my engine to run we're gonna have to start making things ourselves and so there were a couple different major approaches almost all the billet irons which are those you know pieces between the rotor and rotor housings there were two major ways that people took that on either there were like a steel insert that the the side of the rotor would would sit against although the seals against that and then in this case, this is more like the pack performance style where there was a, a liquid molten metal of tungsten uh, or chromium carbide 
sprayed onto the aluminum piece and then ground you know flush and so let's come yeah. back the reason is because these components are being made out of billet aluminium yes and of course you've got the side seals will run against these and they're not going to last very long just running them directly against the alloy surface is going to wear it out incredibly quickly so the two approaches as you say one is to put a steel insert or a running material in that's harder than the alloy and the way this one has been done is that spray on hard coating I guess not too dissimilar to the Nicosil style lining that, right. that some alloy blocks use in the sleeves. Yep, yep, very, very similar. And so I had rented an x-ray scanner. It was like a $15,000 handheld unit, and it had told me exactly the composition. And so, you know, there's got some cobalt, some nickel. And so it was really neat to see, okay, this is what's working. Like there's an old racing beat housing, and they actually used more of chromium. And it's just a really fascinating thing to start cataloging all the different things that people are doing and seeing what works. Because so that's one of the big components of uh, kind of both of our spirits is let's show you what works. And I, you know, I'm not selling anything, so I can be very unbiased. Like I'm not, I don't make any money off of it other than just sharing knowledge is, is where I profit from. So that's the more knowledge, the better, I guess. Yeah, 100%. We, we agree wholeheartedly on, on that front. Uh, in terms of cooling, you know, there's a lot of heat being produced in a rotary engine that we need to get rid of. This, as you've already mentioned, it's not a drag engine that's going to run for six to ten seconds at a time. It's longer runs. I assume that these billet components still have some kind of water jacketing to cope with the heat? Yeah, so on my billet irons, and I've left them this way for the purpose of experimentation, there are all the water channels. There's still the same jackets, and they run through there, but they're very small holes. And so I'm curious to see... With it being aluminum versus the traditional cast iron, does it allow the heat to transfer to the, the coolant quicker? I actually put temperature sensors on the inlet and outlet of the motor because there's a lot of talk about on a four rotor, if you have the coolant coming from the front of the motor traditionally, that means that the fourth rotor would get the hottest amount of coolant. So it, the disparity between rotor one and rotor four getting different temperatures was a big concern to me. And so I wanted to see how, much, how cold the t- coolant was going in and how hot it was coming out. And I have not yet seen it exceed about five to six degrees Fahrenheit, even under hard working. So it was a really interesting like, fact. I mean, that is a difference, but it's not as extreme as people were making it sound. No, I would have definitely assumed a, a higher differential there. Now, in terms of the four rotor engines, obviously outside of Le Mans, this isn't, uh, this isn't an engine you could buy from Mazda. So there's a, a few handful of manufacturers out there who have sort of made the pieces that you need in the aftermarket to produce a four rotor engine. And I've also seen mixed results in terms of reliability and a, a lot of this comes down to supporting of the eccentric shaft. So yes. t- talk us through what's done here to, to get the reliability that you're seeing so far. Yeah, so I've had a very long relationship with Jeff Bruce from Precision Engineering and he's really kind of the foremost builder or machinist on eccentric shafts. You know, there are a couple other people that I haven't worked with, but his his work was the same uh, e-shaft that I originally bought for this car seven years ago. It's not the e-chef that's in it right now. It's sitting on my shelf, but it was the one that was infamously lost by UPS. And so that was a four-rotor e-shaft that is a three-piece, which is a traditional, because you can't, you can't have it be a one-piece e-shaft because you can't assemble the motor. It just doesn't work that way. So what's really fascinating about this one, and this was sold to me this way, it was not like it was my idea, is that it's a four-piece e-shaft and there is a bearing in the very center where if you look at a four rotor, you just kind of cut the front rotor off and the rear rotor off. It actually, that center two are very much like a two rotor. They've got that big knot in the middle between the two rotors. 
and then they, they're at 180 degrees of each other. They should be one, one, three. No, they're not. But they're, they're, you know, the, the point is there's a huge knot between the two. And so in this motor, that, that does not exist. The rotor pops off, and there's another bearing in that very center. That is a ball bearing, not a journal bearing. But just like my front cover, and many people use a front cover ball bearing. So I have two ball bearing bearings in the front and the center of the motor. And I think that that is a major improvement, especially for a longer e-shaft, that that center isn't flexing. Every section between a rotor is, is supported. I mean, most people would think that when you see one of these eccentric shafts sitting there on the workbench, I mean, they're nice and rigid, nice and stiff. You couldn't imagine that they're going to flex too much, but particularly at 8,000 plus RPM and with maybe 1,200 plus wheel horsepower on board, uh, it's going to be surprising to most just how much those will move around. And if you don't have that eccentric shaft supported, I imagine the knock-on effect there is that the rotors aren't going to run true and the housings, you can have problems with the, the rotors contacting as well. Yes. So that... As well, I mean, that, that is the theme of what I've been trying to find, testing different things that people talk about making a rotary reliable. Uh, one of the biggest things I'm a proponent of is strengthening that basically torsional uh, rigidity of the motor. So, you know, there, it's a bunch of plates in a row. And so you have the e-shaft that needs to be supported better. But I think that the motor itself, you've got these very thin tension bolts. And they're, they're functional. They're, they work great for stock horsepower levels. But I'm a big fan of you know, bigger studs, but more so dowels. And so I, you know, it's economical because I have a CNC machine, but I have traditional 16 millimeter dowel. I have eight of those, seven or eight of those in all of my motors going straight through. Now they, they are actually studs, so they're dowels with screws you know, on the ends. But I can tell you firsthand on the four rotor, when I raced Ken Block, I had turned the boost all the way up to about 40, it was 39 PSI. So the fuel usage and the, the, the fuel ratio suggests it was well over 1500 horsepower when I was racing him. That's hypothetical, but I had either like a rich misfire or something occurred and my second rotor had a, a, an event. Well, the motor, when I tore it down, I took a stone, you know, like a, a you know, clearancing stone and my aluminum housing, the Mazda housing had a small indent, a small raise where the combustion chamber was because something bad happened, but it had the, the dowel directly behind it had caught it and then the, the, it had raised up the aluminum. So it had pressed against the dowel so hard that it had deformed the aluminum slightly, but the motor was still perfect, no, you know, perfect compression, all of that. Well, not perfect, perfect for me. Still running. Still running. You know, and so it has shown that that dowel had kept that motor from expanding to a very catastrophic level. Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com slash free and start developing your own skills today. I think the other thing that's uh, easy to overlook is the torsional forces that are involved with uh, launching a car. And that seems to have, just from my experience in the drag racing realm, it seems to have a problem with some of these engines, particularly four rotors, they tend to twist and, and then bad stuff happens. So I think anything you can do there in order to increase the torsional rigidity of the engine has got to be a good thing. Uh, I'm interested just to talk a little bit about the porting on this engine. I mean, there's a variety of different options. There's the, the side port, uh, full peripheral port, semi-PP. And then with the side ports, there's obviously uh, extend ports, bridge ports. Everyone's got their own naming uh, sort of strategy for the ports as well. And each of them have their pros and cons. So for a start, what, what are you running mm -hmm. on this engine? So this motor came to me with basically what extender street port. And it's closer to the size of the Cosmo port, which I'm very familiar with on the three-rotor. Uh, and, you know, I've got semi-Ps on some of my other cars that I'm testing. But this is actually just a very traditional expanded 
or extended port side port on both the primary and secondary sides of the motor. So there's not anything coming in directly peripherally to this motor. So pros and cons of this extend port style of porting and retaining the side ports versus going to a full peripheral port or a semi-PP and I mean maybe if you could just give a, a high level view of what a peripheral port is for those who maybe haven't seen one. Yeah so uh, when peripheral port is almost like where you have the exhaust that comes directly out the face of the rotor, the side of the rotor, you do the same thing with the intake. And so that's full peripheral. And it's funny to me because I, I never really realized that semi-peripheral didn't mean that it's a smaller peripheral port. It just means that it's also peripheral ported as well as side ported. And so I've been experimenting a lot with semi-peripheral. Uh, I have not had a motor yet that's full peripheral because I, I want low-end streetable, streetability. And I've always tried to do the most at the least. And so that's, that's been my approach. And so semi-P has been my fascination. This motor would have an insane number of intake runners to have semi-P, so I've avoided that with this one. But I, I noticed something that's very interesting is that certain Apex seals, and I, I, I made a video going through all different ones and that have scanned all of them. I, I'm currently testing all different Apex seals and seeing why, what the benefit of the softer ones are, what are the benefit of the harder ones are. And one of the things I've noticed is that on a side port motor, when you push it very hard, soft or very specific types of Apex seals will warp in the center. And so what I'm I took those same exact seals that came out of this motor that had warped, took the rest that were good, put them into my three rotor, and I beat the crap out of that engine. Like per rotor, I make more power on that motor at more time, more moments than this motor. And it has maintained phenomenal compression, but I think it's the semi-P cooling the center of that apex seal. So I'm playing with some theories right now, but I'd love to keep you know, the public aware of what I'm doing. It's, it's interesting. I wanted to dive into the Apex Seals discussion next. So that, that's a nice segue. The Apex Seal, obviously, again, for those who, who aren't familiar with rotaries, that is on, as its name suggests, the apex of the rotor. You've got three of them per rotor housing, and that will seal against the rotor housing. So really key for getting good compression and keeping the combustion event where it should be. So there's the factory seals. There's two millimetre versus three millimetre. Then there's a, a, a huge number of aftermarket players to the market. Now I don't have a, a huge amount of uh, personal experience building these engines but I do deal with a lot of people who do and what I hear is that there's definitely uh, compromises with some of these aftermarket seals where the strength is there, uh, they won't physically break, maybe they will warp as you're talking about yep. uh, but they won't break which is important for not destroying the rest of yes. the engine but the downside is some of these also come with huge wear where they're actually rubbing or wearing against the, the rotor mm -hmm. housing so what have you found there? Yeah, so I I rented an X-ray scanner, this really cool XRF scanner, and I, I have a I have at least ten of all of the variety of Apex seals out there, and so I scanned all of them. I cleaned them off, you know, ground it down so that way I knew I was getting the metal of the Apex seal, and I scanned all of them. And I mean, I, I have a, this big database of what materials each of these are made of, and I realized that that is a small fraction of the puzzle of Apex seals. Is that it's really the heat treating of how long they are heat treated which increases their brittleness or, or or strength however you want to word that and so you tend to find out that the high methanol insane drag racing seals tend to be heat treated longer that's kind of their secret or their trick so they can actually be almost the same metal but heat treated for an extra 12 hours and so it's really fascinating finding that sort of information out and so i'm not a drag racer but i do have bursts of you know utilizing that power like that and so i've been focusing a little bit more on variety uh, of use. And so I'm building up a database because that, that's such a controversial question. You know, everybody asks me, what do you, what Apex seals do you use? The honest answer is I use a lot of different ones because I'm trying to see 
trends? I think on that note as well, everyone has their sort of their, their pet favourite, so it does always get to be a bit of a controversial debate. I mean, I think it's going to be very hard to get a, a clear 100% defined winner in terms of Apex Seals, what's the best, uh, because the question that goes along with that is the best for what? As yes. you mentioned, what, yes. what will be ideal for a, a drag racing application, six or seven seconds of, of full power versus, you know, driving around, road race applications, very, very different, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and that's what I learned very quickly is that it was the best for what? What, what are you trying to do? And that, that's a little overwhelming to a, a beginner, a person getting to rotary engines. The question is, or they hear and see all of the memes that the apex seal is the problem, apex seal, you know, boost in, apex seals out. But so then they, the, the right question is, well, then what's the right apex seals? And, then, and I hate when it's a loaded question that, well, for what? Now, I do like to see the softer ones. Like you said briefly earlier, is that the stock apex seals are phenomenal. They really are, but they're brittle. And I took a stock motor in my rotary Corvette to prove a point, you know, counterproductive, but to prove the point that it could make more torque than the naturally aspirated LS that people swap in. And I was able to accomplish that stock block, no modifications, but I ended up snapping a, a stock apex seal and it just took out that whole part of the motor. And so I learned my limits, but aftermarket tends to be softer. And so they warp. So it's kind of more, it's more of like a safety feature, not necessarily a, a performance feature. They warp, you essentially lose compression, so the engine won't start, you're, you're forced to tear it down exactly. and do something, but the key part there is that the apex seal has stayed intact, hasn't taken out your housing, it hasn't taken out your rotor, and then made its way out through your turbocharger as well, which yes. gets to be a bit of an expensive train wreck in general. Yes. Yeah, okay, so like move, moving on from the apex seals, let's talk a little bit about uh, the engine management, and you have gone through a change here, so I'm interested yes. to, to sort of talk about that. What did you have and why have you changed? Yes, so people that follow my channel very uh, closely know that I am a fan of using a lot of different things. It fortifies my knowledge on even the specific things because people do it differently and you're like, you see strategies that different ECUs, they name them different or they approach things differently, especially transient throttle. That is a very different thing for different ECUs. And so this car started with an Adaptronic and this car exists because of Adaptronic. They were a huge supporter and very, very much enabled me to know that things were possible. And so uh, with that, Adaptronic really tended to be more of a... Um, like a beta test. There were a lot of functionality that, that was very promising that made it easy to tune, but the advanced functions were a little rough. And so I'm, I'm actually very thankful that Haltech bought Adaptronic and then took the brainchild of Adaptronic, Andy Wyatt, and then let him work within their polished environment and the Nexus series was created. And so I moved from the Adaptronic M6000 to the Haltech R5. That was funny because Haltech actually sponsored me with that but it was for a different project, but I really saw all the functionality that ECU had, ECU and power, you know, power distribution module kind of all in one. And so I put it in this car instead. And oh my God, that was so worth it. They had recently, I did this whole strategy because it's an all wheel drive car. And so it's from an R32 GTR. And I had worked very hard to, to reverse engineer that. Well, maybe a month after I got the car running on the R5, they released an Atesa control system. So it's phenomenal for, you know, for dynamic, you know, the all-wheel drive system on this car right now, I can either go full rear-wheel drive, full all-wheel drive, or even a shade of based on lateral and longitudinal G-force, pedal position, engine demand, all of these different custom parameters, and it uh, dynamically adjusts the all-wheel drive system. So that's an aftermarket controller for the fat chain, the Sanitesa system? It's built, yes. So the stock system, when they say Teza, at the end of the day, the all-wheel drive system on the Atezza is really just like if you could actually have a fourth pedal that just 
like a clutch pedal that would be rear wheel drive to all wheel drive. And that's all that's going on. So there's an electronic system controlling that fourth pedal is the way I like to look at it, simplify it, and then go, okay, so now the, the Haltech controls the electronic system that's just going no pressure to full pressure and every shade in between. And a lot of the, the drag racing people running the R32 GTR or any of those earlier GTRs for that matter uh, tend to sort of launch in full four-wheel drive and then once the car is sort of out of the hole, maybe past the 330, they'll actually start removing that front drive component yeah. because it becomes less necessary. Are you, are you doing anything similar to that? Uh, somewhat similar is that when I launched this car in the street or when you saw me race Ken Block, I was at about 30% torque to the front. I don't know the exact you know, parameters of what that means. I haven't, I haven't tested what, like, when does the front start to break loose or, or uh, no longer provide traction? When does it start to slip? I don't know that answer, but at least from a general perspective, I'd seen that a lot of uh, R32 will just either they'll, they'll do exactly what you said, or they'll stay at about 30% to the front and launch it on, on that way. And so that's, that's what I had done then. It is a very violent car when I lock it in all-wheel drive. And, and, you know, this car was based off of the Hunicorn suspension. And so I, I want to do Hunicorn things. And so I lo- when I locked it into full all-wheel drive, drifting this thing really showed that the system is locking those front tires very solidly. Because, I mean, I'm always on very fresh, sticky tires when I'm doing something stupid like that. And so it's neat to see that the, the all-wheel drive system is just working so flawlessly. Let's just come back to the Haltech Nexus R5 for a moment. As you mentioned, Andy Wyatt, who was at Atronic, uh, he he sort of now is Haltech and he was instrumental in the, the R5. And and to your point about the Adaptronic, uh, I, I tend to agree having own, had my own experiences with them. One of the really nice features, which I think of all of the brands I've tuned is the most seamless is their staged injection. Yeah. It requires very little input from the tuner and literally you just don't notice the crossover. Nice thing of course is now that is available on the Nexus R5 or the Haltech brand. Uh, in terms of that R5 for people who, who aren't aware of it, could you tell us what is unique about the R5? Yeah, absolutely. So my experience of ECUs is all Adaptronic, FuelTech and Haltech. And those are very consumer friendly brands. You know, you, you've got the high level stuff. And so I feel like the R5 is a beautiful crossover into very professional ECUs. I mean, it, it has so much customization that not only can you do the basics, but you can start to feel comfortable doing custom things. And I think that's where it really shines for me. But some of the major benefits of the R5 is, is the logging system. You know, the Elite 2500 has a very small logging internal storage. The R5 basically logged the last year of my life. Like it's, it's a lot of database. Uh, and, I, you know, management by measurement is a very big part of my, the philosophy. I mean, I think a lot of people might not see the value in that. But particularly when you're starting to try and fine tune uh, what is a, a very complex vehicle, you are relying on looking at the data after you've been out on the drag strip or, or around the track. Yeah. So that's pretty important. Uh, the, the other element that uh, I really liked about the R5 is the integration of essentially a power distribution module. So you're utilizing that as well? Yes. Uh, the, so I, this car is running off of the R5, and it's maxed out inputs and outputs. All inputs, all power outputs, not all of like the data outputs, because uh, I don't need all, you know, whatever, 20 million injectors. I, I need a lot of injectors, just not all of those. And then I also have the ECU Masters P, uh, PDU, I think. PMU, I think. Yeah, PMU, yeah. Everybody has a different acronym. The Autosport version of their PMU, love that as well. And it actually has the, uh, the dash from uh, uh, ECU Masters as well with phenomenal like 16-point temperature sensors. So I can see, the, like a video game, I can see the, the temperature of the tire in 16 points. So I, both of those companies have worked really well on this car. And it actually works 
from a power distribution center standpoint, my ignition system, which is actually from a fuel tech, you know, it's their FT Spark. But rotary requires two separate capacitor units because you have the, the leading and the trailing firing so quick that the capacitor can't recharge. So at full tilt, this car uses 80 amps on ignition only. And so it's a little overkill, I believe, but uh, I've never had a problem with it, you know. And so you can see my need for power on this car is, is pretty great. So having both the ECU Masters and the R5, wonderful combination. How, how have you gone about spreading the, the load across those two units? Have you sort of focused on the R5 for engine-based power requirements and then the PMU 16, or sorry, the Autosport version of the PMU for the, the rest of the chassis wiring or a combination? I definitely tried to do that because I wanted to make sure if, you know, kind of thinking about fail-safes, that if this unit was to disconnect or to, if something on that unit was to overload the entire unit, would I have some of my engine brake, therefore take out my motor? I made sure that all the super critical things were on the R5. So that way, if things were to fail, at least I would have the, the heart of this motor. And that's something I really uh, just want to say very quickly is that I think the, the biggest mistake on rotary engines is that people forget that the engine is just very sensitive. It's very, it's, they call it unreliable. I think of it as sensitive. And so all the other systems, your fuel system, your ignition system, your cooling system, that's actually the rotary engine problem. And when I was thinking about how to build the electronic system, you know, I went with brushless fuel pumps. I went with a water pump that was from a BMW, and that's also brushless. But And so I could cycle the, the coolant, you know, while the car is off. And so I did a lot to support the vehicle. And again, that was my strategy while wiring the car. I think this really comes back to your point about running the Corvette engine with the, the stock seals. And I mean, I think in general, rotary engines get a, a bad rap. They've got a bad reputation for reliability, which isn't entirely uh, justified. I think most of the issues around rotary engines and failures is either they've been built incorrectly with the wrong parts, or more often uh, they're tuned incorrectly. As you mentioned, they are a very sensitive engine. You could run most uh, inline six-cylinder engines, piston engines, into light detonation while you're sort mm -hmm. of sorting things out and maybe finding the limits. Try doing that on a rotary engine, and, and yep. it's probably not going to end well for you. So I think, yeah, tuned sensibly with uh, a, a nice conservative approach, they, yep. they 100% can be reliable. Yeah. Look, Rob, I, I know we could talk for another really hour yes. here today, but I yeah. do want to respect your time. You're, you're a man in demand, so we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, yeah. and we look forward to seeing the rest of this journey. If people yeah. do want to see more of the car, and I know you've got an unlimited amount of content on it, where are they best to do yeah. so? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very creative, and everything is just my first and last name, <laughs> Rob Dom. So, like, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, it's all R-O-B-D-A-H-M. We'll chuck a link in the, the description as well so it makes it super easy. Thanks again for your time. Oh, thank you for making my tuning and wiring possible. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to helping us get the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe.